Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Sunflower Sutras. I'm your host, Tara. I would like to apologize first and foremost. I am recently getting over a really horrible cold, so if I sound a little differently, there's the reason why. To kick things off for this week's episode, it might be a bit cliche, but I love it nonetheless. Shakespeare's Sonnet 18. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often his gold complexion dimmed. And every fair from fair sometime declines, by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe and eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. And with us in the studio today, we have Charles Anthony Silvestri. Hello. For those of you who think that name sounds familiar, yes, this is Professor Silvestri of the History Department here at Washburn University. For those of you that may not know, did you know he's also a poet? I am, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I teach in the History Department here, and my specialty is the ancient and uh, medieval courses, as well as the, um, the world history survey courses. I sort of am the guy that does it all. Uh, and I like that. I like being a generalist. Uh, and that's part of what I do also as a poet. My poetry output is predominantly lyrics for choral composers. Uh, and we can talk about how that, the genesis of how that all started in a bit. But I've worked for about 20 years providing tailor-made poems for composers to set, uh, to, to create choral settings. When they can't find the right poem for the thing that they need or what they were commissioned to do, then they call me and I create that poem just for them. You had a piece called Sleep that you you penned for your friend Eric Whitaker. That's right. Uh, there's a fun little story about that that <laughs> I, I read in the book for Sleep, right. which, by the way, I absolutely love that book because the illustrations, I know this is not at all something that you did, but the illustrations just reminded me so much of like Maury Sendak, so yes. it was a very emotional book for me. <laughs> there's a whole wonderful story about that. What Tara's referring to is an illustrated book of one of the poems that I wrote called Sleep, and the artist for this book contacted Eric and me saying, this should be a children's book, and we thought, oh, well, that's a great idea. Uh, and he said, do you mind if I submit you, to you some, some sketches of what I've, uh, what I've done or what I consider to be good illustrations for this book? And we said, yeah, sure. And he submitted these beautiful paintings. They are exactly as they appear in the book. They were already all finished and beautifully done. Wow. And he found such amazing subtleties and little nuances of the poem that, that aren't in the text, but that are in the stories that I tell about sleep and he was a chorus guy and so he had sort of heard those stories and he had sung the piece and uh, when we went to print the book we used Warzala Press in Wisconsin and they are the press that printed Where the Wild Things Are <laughs> and also um, Polar Express which are two types of illustration that are very similar to the illustration style of this book and so Anna Horius the, the artist that I worked with he's a Dutch artist he wanted to use that printer because <laughs> they would be able to reproduce his artwork 
exactly the way they did Maurice Sendak's work. And so that's why we chose that printer. That makes my day. But anyway, the story you're referring to is um, Eric wrote this choral work for Robert Frost's Stopping by Woods. And he wrote the piece. It was for a commission to commemorate some deceased loved ones of a particular family. And he wrote the work, uh, created the setting, and they performed it, and it was wonderful, and the family had catharsis, and it was great. And then he went to publish the work, and the Robert Frost estate denied him permission mm. to use the poem. And uh, and so, basically, the piece was dead. And it was going to be dead until 2038, or whenever the, the mm. poem become became public domain. And so that's when he asked me, and we were best friends, we've been best friends for 25 years or so. This was early in his career, and he asked me if I wouldn't mind taking Stopping by Woods on a snowy evening and dropping it out and then replacing it with a totally new poem that exactly fit the music that he had written. I mean, no small task, right? Yeah. Um, just as, as one does. And I, I took the task, I thought it was fun, and it ended up being a huge success for him and for me, because it opened up the door for other composers to contact me, and that was 20 years ago, and I've written and published over almost 50 works now uh, with composers all over the world. Because I said yes to that favor to a friend, it's, it's turned into an amazing, uh, an amazing journey and a whole second career for me. Yeah, I, I remember uh, certain times where I've taken your class and you've had days where you had to completely reschedule the syllabus or you had it scheduled in the syllabus will not be in country right? <laughs> because of your traveling. Yeah, I have ended up, because of my work with composers and choirs around the world, I've had the most amazing opportunities to travel. Choir writing lyrics has brought me to Japan and to the UK several times, to Ireland, to Austria, to Germany, all over the United States. Next summer, I'll go to Norway oh. for a choir festival uh, for the premiere of a work. It's been a great journey, and I've met the most amazing people. I've, I've got to hear my poetry sung with custom-made soundtracks in all of the great spaces on our planet. You know, from the Vatican to Westminster Abbey to Disney Concert Hall and the Sydney Opera House and even on the space shuttle. How does that emotionally affect you? Because you talk a little bit about that in the preface for your latest book, your collection of your poetry, A Silver Thread. You talk about how there's this profound, almost too much emotional connection. There's writing, there's the poet, and then there's bringing the poet's words into this beautiful choir yeah. music. You said that it's this connection of the genius of the poet with like the, the heart of the singers. Right. The words take a long journey before an audience gets to hear them. And as a poet, I'm very lucky. I joked about, you know, having a soundtrack, a custom-made soundtrack, but it really is. You know, when we go see a movie, we're affected by the story and by the performances and the direction, but we're also very subtly and sometimes subliminally affected by the soundtrack of the film. If you don't notice the soundtrack, then it was a good soundtrack, right? <laughs> because it, it helped to emotionally enhance your experience. As a poet, I'm lucky that my poetry always gets soundtracks, uh, musical interpretations of my words that when the audience experiences my poetry, they experience it with that musical vehicle, right? So I think what I said, or paraphrase what I said in the, the foreword to the, uh, the work, is that, you know, my intention as a poet, I craft the poem, and then that poem gets delivered to the composer. The composer then finds the music embedded in it, 
and brings that out and puts it on the page and arranges it and has the voices singing together and so on. And then that sheet music goes to the director and the director internalizes it and studies it and figures out how best to interpret it. And then they teach that combined work to the singers. Each singer internalizes the text with the vehicle of the music in some way. Some part of it is going to fit with their personality or their journey, and they'll be able to create an emotionally authentic message that then they perform. And then the last step of the journey is the audience member, who, who knows, the, the audience member may, may need something very important that night. They may need to hear a message that's in that poem that none of us intended and none of us can foresee or anticipate. But that person has just lost their job, or that person just got a difficult diagnosis, or that person just lost their mom, or that person in the audience is going to propose to his girlfriend after the concert, or that person is thinking about having a career in music but not really sure if that's practical. And then there's something about what's delivered to them. Through all of those magical steps, when they're all done with good intention, there's that magic that happens, and you can profoundly affect someone's life in the audience without even knowing who that person is. You can even save a life. See, that is, on one hand, tremendous, but on the other hand, uh, to think that something I write would have that intensity of a connection is... How do you deal with that? <laughs> you know, it's, it's very humbling. It's a great, great honor to do what I do. And I think any artist, any poet, any composer, any painter, uh, any teacher would say that what they do, it's a great honor to do what they do. And I think that really gets underscored when, when you have some feedback from someone who shares with you a personal experience about what your work of art meant to them. Just taking sleep, for example, right? When I wrote Sleep, uh, my son was a toddler. He was three at the time, I think. and. It was in that phase where he didn't want to go to bed and there was monsters under his bed and daddy I need a drink of water and daddy I have to go potty and so on. And so the poem I wrote was about not wanting to go to sleep from the perspective of a child, right? Of course the original poem ends with miles to go before I sleep, miles to go before I sleep. It ended, the choral piece ended with this amazing meditation on the word sleep. So I had to write a poem about that, right? But since I wrote that poem, my wife got ill with cancer and she struggled for a little over a year uh, fighting it and she passed away and it was not an easy or pleasant death. The angels dragged her into heaven. And for me, sleep now, when I hear it, sleep is the, I like to say that it's the soundtrack of the passing I wish she had had. The soundtrack of the passing she had was sort of like O Fortuna from <laughs> Carmina Burana or, or something. Uh, something bombastic. But anyway, sleep is a sweet piece. And of course, the original poem has this amazing ambiguity between sleep and death. You know, does the guy freeze to death or does he get back on the horse and, and go? And I didn't intend for my poem to have that same ambiguity, but it does. And so I've been contacted by scores of people who have told me that uh, sleep helped them get through the death of a loved one, or I played sleep in the hospice for my grandfather when he was passing, or um, my goldfish died, and the only thing that helps me get through it is to listen to sleep. I mean, it, it, it's anything, any kind of loss, and then people latch on to that piece, and then they reach out to Eric and to me to tell us how much that piece meant to them. And that's the cool thing about Anna Horius's illustrations for the children's book version of it. He had heard me tell that story, and so 
what he did was he illustrated the book and in the book there's a father who's putting a son to bed and on the bedside table of the son is a picture of a family and it has a mom in the picture the mom is nowhere in the book but she's there she's there as a feather in on every single page there's a feather and that's the feather of the angel mommy that's not yeah. there anymore and so he it's subtly in the illustrations but the whole the, the fact that a work of art can can grow and mature and become something that even the creators didn't intend for it to become and to affect people profoundly on levels that we never even anticipated that's that's a joyous wonderful and terrible thing yeah. and it really does keep you humble you have to you have to be careful what you craft because it has a life and it affects real life human beings after you create it it's obviously not as profound as like losing a loved one but I remember in high school, uh, my first ever boyfriend uh, was showing me this uh, this choir piece because he was in choir and I was in choir. And he said, this piece has been helping me so much. He had horrible anxiety. He still to this day has horrible anxiety. And that piece was sleep. And wow. I, thought, I thought it was so beautiful. Wow. And I, to prepare for this interview, I listened to it again for the first time in like five years the other night. And... You know this, but um, maybe not all of our listeners know this. Uh, my mother passed away last month. And, you know, even if you don't think about the subtext or the overt text, yeah. there's just this overwhelming, like, ethos that comes through with the way that Eric conducted it. Mm -hmm. And it just, it forces you mm -hmm. to be just in tears. Mm -hmm. And that's the beautiful thing about lyrical poetry, about this poetry that you make that is specifically intended to be composed. And some of your pieces obviously are not these, like, I'm mourning pieces. Right. You, you've got some funnier pieces. Oh, yeah, there's funny ones and joyful ones. It all depends on what I'm commissioned to do. I very rarely write poetry for myself. Right, I don't have a, a beret and I have a journal in my back pocket and when the muse comes upon me I whip out my journal and I, and I write a poem. The poetry I write is commissioned. So a composer will contact me with a very specific set of parameters that they need. Right, I need a Latin poem about a bell. Oh, okay, I'm your guy. You know, they look through, they comb through all the books of poetry, all the public domain stuff, all the poems that they can get access to and they can't find the exact poem that they need for whatever occasion, whatever commission, whatever sort of piece that they have a, a heart to write, and, and that's where I come in. And so I interview the composer and I try to get as much of their emotional landscape as possible so that I can craft for them just the right kind of poem that will speak to their heart in the way that they want to write the music as they've communicated that to me. Some composers are more forthcoming about that than, than others. But then that gives me all the raw material that I need. That and my imagination and my experience and my my own artistic creative inspiration will allow me to craft a piece that, that speaks exactly to them. And I try to embed music in it. I try to think, as a choir singer, I try to think programmatically. My poem needs to have, like a good choral piece, it needs to have a beginning and a middle and an end. It needs to have an obvious climax, some sort of volta right where a major key might turn to minor or the minor might turn to major at the end and it'll come right at the golden mean of the poem and all that so knowing what a, a composer needs to create a home run of a choral piece 
I put that all in the poem. So they don't have to do any adaptation. They don't have to do any lamentation like, oh, I wish this poem did this because that's what I need it to do musically. I already know what it needs to do musically. And so I'll create something for them that'll allow, it's, it's like a slow underhand softball pitch that they can smack right out of the park as a home run. And that's why they like working with me. I get what they need. And so I provide them exactly what they need. You had mentioned um, the, the writing in Latin, a predominant amount of poems in this book. I don't know you, about predominant. I'd say at least half of the poems. No, yes, no. yes. There are a goodly number of them. <laughs> there are many poems <laughs> that you have been commissioned throughout the years for these composers, and a lot of them are in Latin. I, I know, obviously, having had you as a professor, how much you adore the language and adore the history. Well, and I adore the language and history as a historian, but as a <laughs> singer, there is no better language to sing in than Latin. The, the vowels are pure, it's clear-cut. It also has that, dare I say in Latin, gravitas, right? <laughs> There's a sense of sacredness and ancientness and mystery about Latin. And it can communicate all of that subliminally, instantly, from the first word that the choir sings, right? Now, a lot of composers want that gravity. They want that sacredness. They want those pure vowel sounds. It just makes the choir sound fantastic. But they don't want the baggage <laughs> of liturgy or biblical passages and all the stuff, that the churchy stuff that's yeah. usually encrusted on top of Latin, right? And so they want the sound of Latin, but they don't want any of that. And so I'm the guy, apparently, that can... <laughs> compose a new poem in Latin. Now, some composers go for Ovid, or they go to Virgil, or they go to one of the pagan authors or a Latin lyric poet from antiquity. But if they want it to be about a helicopter, <laughs> they, well, okay, that poem doesn't exist. And so then they need somebody like me to craft a new poem in that ancient language that speaks to exactly what they want it to say. That's fun. It's, it's like a Rubik's Cube. It's like a puzzle. You, there's only one way that it'll work that is both grammatically correct and defensible to a classicist, but also singable and programmatic in the way that a composer needs. And I love that kind of multi-dimensional chess <laughs> puzzle that, that is writing a lot of these lyric poems, especially the ones in Latin. So another thing, and this is something for you listeners, beforehand when me and Tony were talking, he kind of fought me on this a little bit. There is a lot of talking of faith in your book. But there's also this this like aesthetic. I guess kind of like you said, the churchy stuff. You gotta separate that from a lot of Latin sure. verse. I'm not a Christian, but there is this like beautiful aesthetic of of God, of Christianity mm -hmm. that comes through in your poems. Well, I don't know that I'd call myself a Christian either. I, I it's complicated, I guess, is the only way to describe it. There are beautiful, beautiful things about Christianity and about the message of Jesus. There are also some wonderful cultural things that have come out of the church tradition, whatever denomination it is, with Reformed or Orthodox or the Catholic tradition. But there's also a lot of really nasty, ugly stuff that's come out of that. You know, somebody said once that, that I have no problem with God, that it's his fan clubs that I have a problem with. And I'm really that way. I, I've taught world religion my whole career. 
And so there is beauty and majesty and mystery and truth to be found in the teachings of Jesus and in the teachings of Buddhism and Islam and ancient paganism and in any number of faith systems. I love teaching and studying about Hinduism. I love teaching and studying about Buddhism and Shinto and prehistoric animism. There's all wonderful truths there. And if what these religions say about God is true, God is way bigger than any one of his shoebox fan clubs, right? There's an incredible hubris about saying that you know what God is like. We can't possibly know what God is like. And so I hope what comes through in my poems, even the poems that are overtly Christian, written for a church commission or whatever, I try to put a little bit of that mystery in. I try to communicate some of the the mysticism that, that I experience in my own faith journey, because I have to be authentic to myself. I can't just, I can talk the talk, you know, and write a hymn or whatever. I can do that, but it's not authentic to me. Yes. So if I were to write a hymn, it would have to have that kind of, huh, <laughs> in it, right? Or write it in such a way that the congregation hearing it might perk up and say, oh, wow, I, I never thought about that before. Yeah, you have a lot of imagery a lot of more like feminine imagery. Mm-hmm. You've got this one line that's actually occurred and I think two, maybe three of your poems about a dark and ancient mother. Yeah, I see the ocean, the sea as our dark and ancient mother. And yeah, I'm kind of glad, but I'm also kind of <laughs> horrified that you caught that I used the same <laughs> reference in several poems. But anyway, it, it's like a that idea about the, the ocean as a dark and ancient mother. That's kind of like a, a splinter in my heart, and I'm trying to get it out. And so it's going to come, that image is going to come again and again and again until I get it right, until I figure out what it is I want to say about the sea. But what that line means to me is the primordial ooze, the evolutionary story of us as a species. And we all come from the ocean. And it's so vast and so dark and so deep and so mysterious that it is kind of a way on earth for us to experience the kind of woe of God, right? Yeah. Um, Who knows what's in there that we haven't even yet discovered. But for someone to stand on the shore and pontificate about all the things that are in the sea, that's absurd. (laughs) Just like we can't pontificate about what God is like. There's, there's a set of poems. I like writing about Advent, this, this period in preparation for Christmas. And, and I've been asked to write many Advent poems. And what I try to do is imagine the world before Christianity, right? The old gods coming together to greet the new, their little brother, as I call Jesus, the baby Jesus, in, in one of these poems. And so I've written a lot of what I would consider overtly pagan Advent poems, where the old religion waits for the arrival of the new and putting putting Christianity in a much larger global religious context, that it's not the be-all end-all, that it is not the alpha and the omega. It's not the only path. There were and are many paths that lead to transcendent experience of that thing, whatever it is, that we can't possibly describe or understand, right? Yeah. And so that's an example of how I might get a congregation to go, huh? <laughs> yeah, I. one of the bigger things that I was able to notice, a lot of your faith-themed poems, they all go back to love, though. Mm-hmm. And, it's, it's, and there's a really great poem near the end of the book, uh, Four Different Types of Love, uh-huh. in, according to you know ancient Greek uh, right, right. philosophy. So even there, 
you're going away from the figurehead and going more towards what attracts you to what you genuinely feel. Yeah, when you boil every religion down, it doesn't matter what religion it is. Every religion basically teaches, don't be a jerk. <laughs> you know, the other guy is just like you and is on their journey towards their own fulfillment. And so, you know, prop a brother up rather than knock a brother down. Every religion teaches that. And, and that's the core truth. Love is the core truth behind every religion. And what happens to us, we're human beings, bless our hearts, right? We take that core message, love, love your neighbor, love yourself, right? Love God, whatever, whatever God is. Wow, that's such a beautiful message. I want to put that beautiful message in a special precious box, a reliquary, right? Made of gold and crystal, right? <laughs> and then this reliquary that contains the precious truth is so precious that we need to build a shrine around it. And then we need to put that shrine in a cathedral. And then we begin worshiping the cathedral and all of its trappings and all of its rules and crenellations the rather idolatry. than the idolatry of it. The church, all the church with a capital C, doesn't matter what <laughs> church it is. Religion is a form of idolatry that honors that which is not God, right? Yeah. And in some cases, and I don't want to anger your listeners, in some cases, churches, denominations, congregations actively act against the direct teachings of Jesus or of the divine figure in their faith. And they do things like blow up stuff themselves or yeah. condemn and judge or cast someone out or whatever. Things that would make Jesus just shake his head. Why do they do that? And it's because we've lost sight bless us, <laughs> pray for us. We've lost sight of the core truth of what's in there. And I think that's a poet's job. The poet's job is to take a truth, a human truth, and to kind of clean it up and present it in a delicious, beautiful way, right? Using words in an intentional way. Having a conversation, saying a prayer, singing a song. These are all things that we can do to express truth. But a poem is a particular kind of word truth right? Uh, using that particular medium, that, that language to express a human truth. And, and I think, yeah, maybe if you picked up on, on love being that truth, then yay, I, I, I did my job. <laughs> so speaking of cleaning up and presenting something, the preface for your new book, A Silver Thread, it kind of sounds like it was at first maybe a begrudging process of people <laughs> forcing you like, yeah. Tony, you have so many things, yeah. please make a book. This has been another one of my journeys, you know. I'm an accidental poet, <laughs> trained as a historian and as a teacher, and my best friend just happened to be a composer who asked me to write a poem for him. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll try that. The first thing was actually uh, a Latin translation that I did for him, and then that turned into Sleep, and then that turned into Leonardo Dreams of His Flying Machine, and by then the flying machine had flown and other composers started contacting me. But I've had a long, long time to deny that I'm a poet, and to fight back against that. And so for the longest time, I hid behind, it's like, oh, I'm not a poet, but, but you write poetry. Yeah, but I write lyric poetry that's, that's used by composers. It's not like in poetry books or I don't do poetry readings, but your poetry does get read, it gets sung, it gets experienced. Well, but, right? So my whole journey was, yes, but. The lyric poet is just a different kind of poet. It's a different sort of craft where you have to be very mindful of vowel sound, 
Uh, you don't want to write an, what's obviously going to be an ascending line and then give an E vowel at the end. So the sopranos are going to be shrieking an E vowel <laughs> up at the high part of their register. And you don't want your poem to have a lot of S's at the end of a line or K's or T's because, hey, I've been in choir rehearsal. I know how many weeks you'll have to work for that one bass or that one tenor to put the S where it's supposed to be put. You know, so give them M's and N's and open vowels at the end of a line. You know, these are the kind of things that a lyric poet would think of that a regular poet, a word poet, doesn't necessarily have to think about. They can write all the crunchy stuff that they want because it's meant to be experienced on a page or it's meant to be experienced to be heard in a reading. And a single person, a single voice doing a poetry reading is very different, a very different animal than a, to get a choral sound, to get 50 people to make the same vowel sound at the same time. So you have to embed all that in. That's my journey of saying, oh, I'm not a poet, I'm not a poet. Well, when I was approached by GIA to write a retrospective collection of my poetry, my first thought was, well, uh, I'm not a poet, and, and who would want to read my stuff anyway? And so their response was, well, no, <laughs> shut up. You are a poet, and people do want to read your stuff. And then my next thought was, well, I certainly don't have enough poetry to make a whole book. And my publisher just said, Tony, just create a word file and cut and paste all your poems into the word <laughs> file, and then we'll see. Oh, and gosh. so I did that, and of course there was 200 pages of poetry. I really, I truly couldn't believe that I had written 200 pages worth of poetry. Well, you have poetry from 2001 all the way up to 2018. That's right. a lot of years. And there's a whole bunch of poems that aren't in the book, stuff that I was still writing when it had to go to press, things that hadn't been premiered yet, and I didn't necessarily want to have them in the book before the choir who commissioned the poem got to sing, sing the lyrics. So there's even more than that. Uh, and it's certainly been an exciting process to create this book and to choose. Some poems I wrote didn't make it in. They're just sort of dumb or clunky or they, didn't, don't, they don't work for a poetry book. But most of the stuff that I've written, even many poems that didn't ever get set by a composer, they're in there too. There's a whole bunch of brand new lyric poems that I wrote just for this book. The whole goal of the book, too, was not only to introduce myself to a wider poetry reading community, but also to reintroduce myself to composers. Almost all the poems in the book are all licensable for new for composers. If somebody else wants to take a crack at Sleep, or Leonardo Dreams of His Flying Machine, or any of these other older poems that have been set by other composers, they're all available. They all can, I, I would love to hear more settings of those poems. All right, so this poem is called Rosa Morienda. There's a story behind this poem. My wife uh, passed away in 2005, and my friend, my best friend, the composer Eric Whitaker, continued to encourage me to write about my grief. And, and I remember him saying that there's good stuff there. You know, you need to write poetry about this. And I was like, oh, I'm not ready, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. Finally, he pushed and pushed and pushed, and, and I said, okay, I'm gonna write a poem about what I'm feeling about grief, about the loss of my wife. And Rosa Morienda was this poem that I wrote, and, and I'll read it for you. Rosa tempus conteret suaviter florescere, ita sua variocultissima patescere, simul eam incipis subtiliter conoscere, moritur. The rose takes her sweet time to open up, thus to reveal her manifold mysteries, and just when you begin to understand her, she dies. So this poem is a completely intellectual exercise. There's no emotion in it at all. 
and this was written in 2007, so it was two years after Julie died, and, and I still wasn't ready to process really, truly what I was feeling. And so this poem is all in my head. It's an intellectual exercise. It's Latin. It's metrical, rhyming Latin in a medieval meter. It couldn't be farther away from the real raw emotion that I just simply couldn't express. And then one of the things I'm, I intentionally did was order the poems in this book chronologically so that if somebody wanted to sort of chart the process of my maturation, the maturation of my voice as a poet, they would also see a theme of me continuing to open up more and more and more authentically and more emotionally about the loss of my wife. And by the end of the poem, I'm, I'm writing very deep, very personal, very heartbreaking stuff about the emotional quality of losing my spouse. But that Latin poem was the, sort of the first iteration of, of my grief in its intellectual form. This is a poem called Tonight I Dance Alone, and it was commissioned by a Swedish composer, uh, Morten Janssen, and he told me a, there, there's a Swedish story about, about a magical forest where a man goes to see his lost love who has died, or, or something, I forget the exact genesis of the story, but in a way it's, it's a poem about someone else, but it's also kind of about me and my experience. So this is called Tonight I Dance Alone. On an early summer evening, a man and a boy stood before a mirror, looking in. Brother, said the boy, how do you tie a tie like that? Left over right and up on through. You'll get it right when you wear a tie on your wedding day. Tonight we dance in the moonlight, my bride and I. Tonight the moon is made for us, to shine on us alone. Tonight we'll kiss by the firelight in the forest we love. On an early summer evening, the man and a girl stood at the front door looking out. Daddy, said the girl, why are you all dressed up like that? Your mother and I are going out to a fancy dinner and then off to dance for our anniversary. Tonight we dance in the starlight, your mother and I. Tonight we toast two dozen years of life, of love, of joy. Tonight we'll kiss in the candlelight in gratitude. On an early summer evening, an old man and a boy walked to the edge of the driveway step by step. Grandpa, said the boy, why are you wearing that red bow tie? It was your grandmother's favorite. I wore it on our wedding day. Grandpa, said the boy, will you see her in the forest? You never know. Those woods are magic. Soon we will dance in the godlight, my love and I. Soon the moon will be ours again, and the endless shining stars in the halls of heaven. Soon, my love, very soon. But tonight, one last time, tonight I dance alone. Thank you very much, Tony. Thanks for having me. You got to hear really beautiful poetry. Well, I assure you that the entirety of this book is beautiful poetry. It's called A Silver Thread by uh, Charles Anthony Silvestri. Please seek it out because it was a really wonderful read. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you for being on our show. My pleasure.
And now for our listener submissions. This week's submission is brought to us by Scott Thomas Outlaw. Scott hosts the site 17numa.com, where links to his published poetry, fiction, essays, interviews, reviews, live events, and books can be found. That's 17numa.com. His work has been nominated for the Pushcart Prize and Best of the Net. Outlaw was a recipient of the 2017 Set You Magazine Award for Excellence in the Field of Literature. His words have been translated into Afrikaans, Albanian, Dutch, Italian, French, Persian, and Siberian. He has been a weekly contributor for the cultural newsletter Dissident Voice since 2014. His most recent book, Abstract Visions of Light, was released in 2018 through Alien Buddha Press. Elusive. We're all looking for something better than what we are, something deeper than what we felt, something stronger than what we've sensed, something more honest than what we've been telling ourselves, something more steady, something more calm, something more real than what we've experienced, something that never winds up hurting us in the end, something sweet that isn't addictive, something alive that doesn't die on us, something powerful that never loses its grace, something that never runs dry, something that never talks back, something that comforts us when we are hurting, something that understands the existential pain, something that does not lack in the moments when we need it most, something that is brave when we are full of fear, something that fits the bill, something that naturally smiles for the camera without having to fake any cheese, something rich without pretension, something high without a kite. Well run dry. Nothing remains from our fire but ash, and I have a mouthful trying to taste you. It leaves me choked up, but these tears cannot help serve as water because they only add more salt to the wound. It's a matter of record slash opinion. Tell me something meaningful and make sure I believe it before you double down my debts. Then dance in your pride and vanity. Then dance in your ignorance and vanity. Then dance in your shaken identity. Then dance, then dance, then dance in vanity. Pat yourself on the back. Pat me on the back. Pat myself on the back. Pat you on the back. Pat us on the back. Pat we on the back. Pat them on the back. I take it all back. I take it all. Thin air, thin air, thin air. There are ghosts in the system, ghosts in the visions, ghosts in the world, ghosts in your pores, ghosts pouring out. Smoke in your eyes, smoke in your hair, smoke on your tongue, fire in your lungs, fire in your heart, fire, 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 always burning. Thin ice, thin ice, thin ice. All your sins have been collected from a life you didn't live. So pray to the gods of the big data and confess that your days have been numbered, drifting through the endless stream, scrolling through the timelines of life, searching for the source to find connection. Tell me something meaningful in every single moment and make sure I buy, 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 but never sell. 
out and down, down and out, never doubt, never doubt, never doubt that there is destiny and there is dust in the thin air, thin air, thin air. There are seeds in the ground. There is blood in the roots. There is will in the shoots. There is power in the bloom. And lastly, empty pages. Poetry followed by philosophy, read on the back porch as the birds squawk and the hawks attack, just as it has always been. Perceptions on the surface may seem temporary and tangible as they change and shift with the turning of the seasons, but at the core, all is still, all is silent, all is one, which is to say, all is nothing and everything and neither. I was 20 years old, lying on the couch in the dark. I took a breath, and I am 38. The same books in my hands, the same old story, under the sun, under the clouds. Where did the time go? Vanished in the space between there to here, then to now. It was all one point, which is to say, there was no point except the points I don't recall. I've forgotten more than I ever learned. If that's possible, everything is possible. Nothing is possible. Every stone has been looked under. Every stone remains untouched. Or maybe I just never learned how to learn what needed to be learned to understand the point that there is no point. I was 10 years old, lying in bed in the dark, staring at the void within, terrified of the empty space. I took a breath and I am 38. There was never a void. There is only a void. The birds know what the bees know, what the heart knows, what I have never known, what I have always known, that I will never know, that I will never learn. The same book in my hands, the same as it has always been. Thank you so much for your wonderful poetry, Scott. And thank you all listeners for tuning in to this week's episode of Sunflower Sutras. It's been a rough go lately, and I appreciate you all. And remember, if you have poetry that you'd like to submit to the show, or know someone who's a poet, maybe shy, maybe doesn't know it, you are more than welcome to share your work with us here at Sunflower Sutras. I am excited to read your work. So long go fall, and farewell.